Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. I'm standing with, you know, at CBS in the morning with Anthony Bourdain because we're doing the uh, promotion for The Last Magnificent. And mm-hmm. a young cook in whites, she wanted to meet him, so she put on her whites and she came up to him and said, how do I become a TV chef? And he turned and said, don't, and walked away. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The only way we're going to get through this is to get through it together. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out. You can book a free call with me by going to joshcopel.com forward slash chat. Also be sure to check out the Full Comp Restart Guide, packed with valuable resources and strategies from Yelp, Cornell University, and Oyster Sunday. Go to joshcopel.com forward slash resources for your free download. Didn't write that down? Don't worry, there are links to both in the show notes. Jeremiah Tower is the father of contemporary American cuisine. From Chapinese to stars, he impacted cuisine and culture. He stepped off the line and into the dining room, creating that role of the celebrity chef. I believe that as an industry, we need to blaze a new trail. And I thought it was a good idea to talk to the guy that blazed the trail for Alice Waters, Danny Meyer, and well, me. We begin this inspiring conversation by talking about who out there is inspiring him. Who impresses you today? Oh, well, that's, uh, let me see. If I answered that, I could never come back to the United States. The ones that have stuck to their restaurants rather than saying, you know, I, I want to be a TV chef, I want to be a TV celebrity. I mean, those all those shows are whatever they are, but it's not really our industry. Why would you want to haul up a bunch of cooks and then make them cry? <laughs> that's not what <laughs> we do. We make people happy. It's hospitality. It's not, you know. Yeah, that, that English chef who on name for the moment is just not the way to do it. So I'm standing with, you know, at CBS in the morning with Anthony Bourdain because we're doing the uh, promotion for The Last Magnificent. And mm-hmm. a young cook in whites, she wanted to meet him, so she put on her whites and she came up to him and said, how do I become a TV chef? And he turned and said, don't, and walked away. <laughs> Actually, what this incredible, horrible world crisis is going to do is open up massive opportunities for new thought and new thinking and new ways of doing and looking again, you know, looking at everything to do with hospitality and rethinking it. And that's an extraordinary moment. I mean, you know, the Black Death in Europe and and 500 years ago, the Renaissance followed that. So, well, and I want to talk to you about change because change is hard, change is scary. And we exist within an industry that hasn't seen substantial change ever, not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime. The, the, the foundational elements of this industry probably haven't changed in a thousand years. But your life, your career is defined by change, right? You, you have made big choices, whether, whether it was you know, to step in the ring at Chez Panisse or, or to, to step out when you chose to leave stars. And, and my, my question to you would be, 
you know, through all of these changes, through all of these brave choices, like what, what inspired that and what inspired that ability to change? Well, when I see chaos, I give it a kiss. And I told everybody, I mean, my staff, you know, we choose our compromises, otherwise they're gonna choose you and then they are in charge and you aren't. So when, you, when you're setting out to open a restaurant, you know, you think of all the things that could go wrong and then you design around that. So now, <clears throat> now change is very difficult. Katrina took away 90% of everything I owned, you know? I could never have cleaned house like that, but Katrina mm -hmm. did it for me. And I just, after I got over the shock and about 30 margaritas later, I went, <laughs> wow, this is a moment. I, it either will, you know, make, fold me or wake me up. And I woke up and went to the So change is very difficult. And uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me was the hurricane took away everything I owned. As I said, once I got over the margaritas, I woke up and thought, okay, what does this all mean? It means an amazing freedom of a kind, a freedom to do whatever I wanted next. Let's talk about that, though. Did you, were you born with that mindset or did you adopt it with, with age and experience? You know, when I was three and a half or four, my father came home one night. We were living in Connecticut and said, we're moving to Australia. And that was in 1947. I had, you know, there. I knew there was Greenwich down the road because my grandfather lived there, but that's all I knew, Australia. So he showed me on, on a map and I thought, and he kept doing that. Came home in Australia, so we're moving to France. Came to France, we're moving to England, we're moving to the United States. So I think change was exciting for me. When you look at your life, what, what I see is, is I see an artist heart, but it does not seem like you were shaded by the same optimism that so many chefs and so many restaurateurs possess, right? That you didn't blindly go into it thinking, everything would be okay, that you were, you were strategic in nature. Can you talk about where those skills came from, if you think I'm right? I think you're right, and it's because I had, you know, a very challenging childhood, and one that actually prepared me amazingly for the hospitality industry, because we, as a child, a young child and teenager, we wallowed in it, you know, my family, traveling everywhere, so, but it was also a very difficult one, so I I knew that, you know, the ground you're uh, stepping on could shift at any minute. And that was good training. But it doesn't, shouldn't stop you from doing anything. You know, when I saw the uh, site for what became Stars Restaurant in San Francisco, everybody thought I was crazy. I mean, I, James Beard was there. I showed one, I was wanted to show off my perfect location. It was Barbara Kafka and James Beard and Jim, all, all the, Danny Kay, everybody was there. And they all said, you're out of your fucking mind. This is terrible as Beard was hitting a rat with his walking stick. <laughs> and the pipes had burst and there was water spewing all over the place. But what I saw was, you know, a perfect stage setting. Uh, and also I had an idea about the area and where it would be wonderful. I guess I'm stubborn because I wouldn't let anyone convince me it was really this terrible idea. Turned out to be a great idea, but you never know. Was it hard walking away or was it easy? Had you had your fill at that point and you were able to walk away and say, this chapter of my life is done. I'm not interested in this anymore. Or did you feel like th there was a sacrifice to be made there to get something else? Well, I always believe in selling something at the top. You know, when it's doing fantastically well, sell it and then do something else. You know, even if it's just going to the beach, but you know, do another restaurant, do a, write a book, whatever. What I didn't know is when it was at the top and I tried to sell it a few times, people said, well, what is stars without you? We're not gonna buy it without you. I said, well, you, okay, you've got a point. I don't know what to say to that. But finally, I did sell it. And it, after, it was 35 years of standing on my feet, 
saying hello to 350 people a day. Uh, it was time to do something else. So it was joyous? Well, I had a lot of money. Money helps. Money especially helps in this industry, right? It does. It does. I mean, there's certain freedom for having money. A lot of money and fame. Uh, it's the other side of the sword. You know, as Anthony Bourdain and I talked about a lot of times, the pitfalls of being famous and wealthy. Of course, he was a lot more wealthy and famous than I am. You know, it's, it's something to be very careful of. Is it as good as it looks? Like to be to be at the top of your game, to be known by everyone, to have a shit ton of money, like to just even if the podcast was off right now, I just I just want you to tell me that it is as amazing as I think it's going to be. Yes, yes, it is. It is. I mean, with that feeling, I mean, some of the great customers of stars, like Rudolf Nureyev, belly dancer, who was a great pal of mine, uh, and other ones, you know, from Hollywood and and the theater and everywhere. Joel Gray, all of those, they went on far too long, you know, and Rudy, Nuria should have stopped dancing five or six years before. It wasn't just because he was got sick later. It's just that imagine walking into a, a theater that has 3,000 people in it, and they give you, when as soon as you walk on the stage, before you've done anything, they give you a 15-minute standing ovation. I mean, that feeling has got to be. Uh, so I had a tiny taste of that, you know, mm -hmm. on a Friday night or a Saturday night at Stars. When the place was absolutely packed, as you can see in the documentary. And at the end of the night, you think, wow, that was really beautiful. Did you appreciate it in the moment? Like, were you oh. able to, to see, sit in that moment and say, this is it, I'm at the top? You know, when it was working well, Friday nights are always chaos because everyone's, you know, late or early or whatever. Saturday night was the one that was, went smoothly and, and was a lot of fun. And we could do maximum numbers. And as you see in the documentary, it was just a big big party, a big theater. The, the industry at large is looking at a 60% permanent closure rate. Nothing seems to last forever anymore. But I, I look at Chez Panisse and I see your playbook, right? And, and that is a restaurant that has managed to thrive long-term. What were the elements that you infused into that restaurant to give it the longevity that it's had? I never worked in a restaurant before. I mean, my first day, I was alone in the kitchen. I was suddenly the executive chef. I didn't even know what that meant. If I'd known, I would have run a mile. The point is, we didn't know that we were doing something that was going to have such an impact. You didn't really know that, but you could feel that you had to do the best you could every day. And we didn't know what, I for one, didn't know what we couldn't do. So you could do anything. And that's a great way to start and continue in your career. Don't listen to the, the way people say this plate should look like this, you should be using these 18 ingredients on one plate. No, 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 no. Do it from your heart, you know, do it from the inspiration that you've had before. Right now, I mean, all a year ago anyway, everyone's plates look the same. I and mean, we went in Sydney, Paris, Rome, San Francisco, Chicago, everyone was plating the same food with that sort of, you know, dragging a cat's ass across a plate. Look, <laughs> the carrot puree. I mean, good God, everybody, stop following TV and magazines and, and do what your heart tells you. Do what the ingredients tell you to do. Well, and those are the real rules. Looking at your career, I, I was actually, one of the things that, that brought you to front of mind was there's a restaurant in LA and the chef just came under fire because she published a cookbook. And in that cookbook, she had used recipes that were used in her restaurant, but created by line cooks, sous chefs, executive sous. And you have suffered similar injustices 
in your own career where, where credit wasn't given, where credit was due. Where have you landed on that now that now that, that topic has seemed to resurface in, in such a muddy landscape? Who owns what? Who gets credit and how should it be distributed? Well, nobody really owns anything. I mean, it was like Julia Child spending a year reinventing mayonnaise and then telling everybody that her recipe was the only one. It was such bullshit. But if, for instance, in my first cookbook, a great grill cook, Stephen Vranian, who's you know, still cooking now. He invented a salsa, which he did many times. I would say, this is Stephen Vernon's salsa. You know, why is it so difficult to have a big heart? So I never understood when people talk, said, you know, well, Alice, when she said, I did it all. She didn't. I mean, it was a whole team of us. I think, you know, nobody owns anything. But if you're using something inspirational from somebody else, another cook or a scoffier or whoever it might be, just say it. It should make you feel great to say it. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I want to pivot to lifestyle. You brought up Anthony Bourdain a, a couple of times now. A mental illness, substance abuse, an overall lack of work-life balance. These are things that exist in all industries, right? But they seem really prevalent in ours. I, I want to have a chicken or the egg conversation with you. Do you think that the nature of the hospitality industry breeds these qualities into people? Or do you think that it draws people into it that already have these issues? I think it draws people into it, you know, slightly crazy. I mean, I think all chefs, you know, all their quirks and, and personality comes from mother somewhere. You're trying to, you know, feed everybody. It, it's a mother thing. And I think if you're not slightly crazy, I don't think you can stand the, the challenges. Who's going to work 80 or 90 hours a week and tell their boss thank you? Does it have to be that? When we talk about like work-life balance, I mean, like we live in a world where people work 40 hours a week. Like, do we have to work 80 to 100 is that necessity in this business? Yes, I think so. I mean, certainly, but I was, you know, compulsive at it. I just remember walking through the Stanford Court Hotel in San Francisco with its the owner, Jim Nasekas, and we were going down to the James Beard cooking class in the basement of the hotel, and we were walking through the foyer, the lobby, and then in the back, and we were walking through, and behind him was his assistant, and he was talking to me like, like this, absolutely, no interruptions, and he said, and the light bulb on that in back of us on the lamp needs to be changed and then kept on talking. And as far as the James Beard's concerned, I mean, I went, he didn't even stop his conversation, but his voice changed a little bit and his assistant knew he was talking to her. Walking by, he'd seen one light bulb out in that vast lobby. That's what it takes. How were you when you started at Chez Panisse? I was 30. Imagine you're 30 today. In light of a global pandemic and looking at the landscape of our industry, would you take that gig today or would you choose another path? That's, of course, the question of the moment that, you know, the whole world is facing. One shouldn't be glib about total disaster that it is. It's time to rethink everything. And one rarely has that luxury because, you know, you're, you're stuck in every day keeping a job, you're keeping a restaurant open, you've got your, your three jobs. When do you ever get the chance to step back and think, maybe I should rethink all this? That happens when you're slammed back. It's a hurricane, it's a pandemic, it's a total disaster. And you pick yourself up, as Elizabeth Taylor told me after the earthquake in San Francisco, you know, pour yourself a cocktail, put on your lipstick and get on with it. I don't wear lipstick, but I mean, you know, I've always thought that was a, a wonderful attitude. Is that the advice you would give culinary students graduating today? It's different, of course, when you're graduating because you haven't, there's nothing for to, to be 
think I've got to rethink my whole career. You don't have a career yet. When you're graduating, I mean, you now the desperation is to find a job. That's your first task, and that's not an easy one. All the restaurants closed. But, you know, it's a mobile kitchen, cooking out of your house. Start a, you know, an industry making world's best caramels and, and send them via you know, UPS. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm just glad I don't have a stars right now because I wouldn't have everything is open to you that's the point I I agree with you and I think that that, that's that perspective is is what enabled this great evolution in your era you were the evolution of the chef for our time uh in your role the role that you created for yourself and for your restaurant was a leap forward for both chefdom and American cuisine what do you think the next evolution is when you look at the landscape I think it's back to, really back to the starting point, which is ingredients. So I think it's, I saw something on Facebook the other day, someone saying, you know, find a farmer who's raising beef, get your whole group of your friends together, go order a couple of cows, find a butcher, you know, start your own food service, food supply, food. Yeah, I, I, it's, it is definitely not clear. I look at it, it, the, the lifeline of your career, and, and what I see is, is that you have been true to yourself in every pass, in every moment. Whatever your truth was, that is what you stuck to and you moved forward. And that requires courage. It, it is as courageous to say, this is for me and I will run towards it, as it is to say, this is no longer for me and to walk away from it. And this is a pivotal time where everyone has the opportunity to make those choices. What, what are the pivotal choices that you made in your life, personal or professional, that you think most clearly define you as a person? Realizing I was a terrible architect, uh, at least on, on Earth. I wanted to be an underwater architect. And there were only about three or four of those even today. So that was a bad choice. And I knew it was a bad choice. So I said, well, what can I do? I can garden, I can cook. There was no money in gardening in San Francisco. And then some friends said, you know, there's this place in Berkeley, and they put an ad in the newspaper saying they needed a chef. And I said, well, so what? And then I thought, well, you know, I've got $25 in my pocket, so so a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever for the interview. And I just thought that was sort of the stupidest thing, one of the stupidest things I've ever done, but I needed the money, so I said, fine. Uh, I had no idea what it was all about or what, what to do. But the, one of the greatest strengths I had was I didn't know what I couldn't do. You know, if I'd been trained from 13 in France, you know, and, and I would think I would have all the things I been told were impossible. So when Jean-Pierre Moulet, who was my sous chef later on, kept saying, oh, no, we can't do that. And I said, yes, Jean-Pierre, we are. And he says that in the documentary. He was faced with all of this. Well, you know, why not? Let's try it. You know? We don't like it, we'll throw it up and do it again. That's a very American quality. I want you to tell me what's broken and how you would fix it if given the opportunity. What's broken is uh, exactly in that question to Tony Burdan when he was standing in CBS and the woman came up and said, you know, how do I become a TV chef? No, 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 no. No, you become a chef. And then you do, you know, then you go open, you know, hotels in Philippines or do a little cafe or do a food truck, whatever you want to do. Do a cooking videos, do a cooking show, but first you become a chef. And that awareness has been somewhat lost. So suddenly everybody is cooking all over the world, is cooking the same food, plating it, and making the same mistakes because they think 
with the amazing amount of ingredients that became available from the 90s on, then everyone thought they could use it, therefore they should. And of course, that's not true at all. The same chefs would go to Barcelona and come back and say, I had the most amazing lunch of my life. It was a piece of fish with olive oil, it was prawn essence and some chopped tarragon or something. And I'd say, well, then why are you putting 50 ingredients? Uh, you know, why are you putting kiwi on top of salmon? I don't get it. <laughs> listen to your taste the food, taste the ingredients, and then cook it. The, the ingredients are the stars, and that's what has been lost. So the way to get back on track is to fall in love with simple ingredients and simple preparations again. In other words, think of Fernand Point. Read his cookbook. Okay, it was in the 40s and 50s in France. Keller's favorite cookbook. So that, that's some recommendation, certainly one of mine. He did his gratin of crayfish tails, and he made the kitchen cook it every day for a year before he thought they had it done perfectly and was fit for the public. And of course, he made them eat it for lunch every day. So they couldn't wait to get it right. <laughs> that, And there are only six ingredients in that dish. That kind of devotion to perfect simplicity will never take you wrong. Let's zoom out and let's look at the industry at large. And obviously, we're in a difficult moment as an industry. And, and the big question is bailout or buy-in, right? Should government or private industry bail out our broken system? Or do the communities need to invest in the restaurants that they want to see survive? And I can answer that. In 1977, I think it was, I was at Harvard Graduate School, architecture school. And I came up with an idea as my thesis that there should be a worldwide symposium about the oceans. And I designed, you know, underwater housing and uh, fish farming and sustainability back in 1977. And I was told by Harvard that that was insane. You know, I should stop taking so many drugs and I should be doing public housing. Well, that was a mutual uh, fuck you. So I <laughs> <laughs> I think I left before they kicked me out. And they said, go to MIT, maybe they're interested, you know. So the other day, I, that, and that was sort of probably the result of way too much, uh, not acid, but, you know, mescaline, which was my choice in the days. <laughs> um, and then the other day, I had a similarly insane idea, which is what I wanted to pass through you to answer your question. I saw the other day, there was on Facebook, the restaurant said, you know, over the eight years or 10 years that they've been open, this is the amount of uh, gross sales, and this is what we paid back in taxes, local, state, federal, wages, benefits, everything. And it was an extraordinary story. And then the next day I read from the CNBC, I think, that between mid-March and mid-May of this year, billionaires' fortunes in the United States soared by $434 billion. And it's September, so God knows what those figures are now. Bezos got $34 billion more, and Zuckerberg got 25. My point, where, what would Facebook and Amazon and all those companies be without the hospitality industry, which is $1.7 trillion annual sales? Think about just the computer chips. Think about the phones. Think about the iPads that are used in hotels and restaurants. I mean, think of every computer chip that has made them worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. That how much came from us from the hospitality industry? Mm -hmm. And it's payback time. That's my point. It's not just money. I want all those companies, you know, Microsoft and Intel and Oracle and Dell, IBM, all those companies. I want their brains. I want the brains of Silicon Valley and the money. 
they could put up a hundred billion dollars and not and just be a whisper to them. Why not? I mean, look at your company Flow, and I found another company on the internet called Dallas-based Black Box Intelligence, a data company that represents 290 restaurant companies and about 50,000 restaurant sites. They must have the ability to, they and you and other companies like you, put all those brains and money together because this is an apocalypse. We think it's bad now, which is absolutely terrible. In the next uh, six months to a year, it's going to get very bad indeed. In fact, it's going to make the Great Depression look like, you know. So it's not about, Nation's Restaurant News just published, uh, you know, how to reopen your restaurant. And it's all about health and safety and, and distancing and everything. No, that's not the point. The point is we have to rethink this. We need an Einstein moment. You know, we need the moment that Jeff Bezos thought about Amazon. You know, and Jeff Bezos came to me in 1985, I think it was, and told me about his idea. And he said, we want you to help publicize it. So they filmed me saying Amazon was great. I had no idea what Amazon was. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't accept the stock he offered because <laughs> they had no money. We need one of those. We need a combined moment. When they started Facebook, when they started Google, when they started Amazon, when they started uh, Intel, you know, I mean, we need one of those moments combined with hospitality people and Silicon Valley type people and the money. What we'll come up with, I have no idea. If I had exactly how it all turned out, you know, I would own the next Google. I'm not that smart. So I think it'll take the combined. I mean, this is a broom that's worldwide to sweep away the old system because it's going to be swept away anyway. So instead of waiting a year or six months until it's absolutely like a tsunami came through and killed everybody, put them out of business, let's do something now. You have the opportunity to speak directly to the audience. What would you like to say? I'm just going to repeat. After the Black Death came the Renaissance, and it's up to all of you to make that happen again. Am I, I mean, uh, I wish I was Pope Leo, the whatever it was, it was, you know, Michelangelo's patron, but I wish, you know, that I was starting, you know, something like the Armand Hotel group, you know, all over again. I wouldn't do it like that. I would do something, but I'm not sure what, what in the next six months, what anyone should do when they've got their restaurant closed and you've got yours closed. That eureka moment will occur. 30 margaritas in two days is a pretty good way to go. That's Chef Jeremiah Tower. Be sure to connect with the chef on Instagram using the handle tower.jeremiah. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.